Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Thursday Night Streams podcast. This week, we have two Franciscan sisters, being Sister Mary Colby and Sister Paula Jean Miller. And the title of their talk is Integrating Our Professional Work with Our Vocational Missions. The mission of the Franciscan Sisters of the Eucharist flows from their consecration to the Church within the mystery of the Eucharist as the source and summit of the Christian life. In a world that knows the rupture between the sacred and the secular, the Franciscan Sisters of the Eucharist endeavor in all their apostolic work to lead the people they serve into a restored sense of the sacred. As a means to this end, the Sisters' apostolic efforts in education, counseling, healthcare, care of the aging, and manual work are directed to increasing a sense of the full meaning of the sacramental life in the church. We hope you enjoy. halfway through so it's great to have this time uh, after that to just be with you all uh, just the, the joy of our faith as we enter into this Lenten season and really prepare ourselves for for living our faith in the world in the world that we live in today uh, the world so much needs uh, the witness the hope of our faith right um, but we're here tonight to talk specifically about integrating our professional work with our vocational missions it was a pleasure at dinner to just hear how many different things everyone here is studying. Right? Everyone here has academic interests, has professional interests uh, that are as, as diverse as really this whole university, right? We've got so much represented. And yet, we're all here because we have another question. How does whatever that is, how does that come together with our faith? graphic design, biomedical engineering, these, these professions that sound so of the world or in the world, how do we bring that back um, to an opportunity to be a witness of our faith? And so really I want to start tonight with another question, um, an even more fundamental question. What is work? And what does it mean to have a mission? And at the heart of these questions, um, as Catholics, we want to look them uh, at an even more basic level. What is the human being? And how is work related to our human nature? And if we understand these two things, how do we as Catholics understand them in relation to our mission to be, bring Christ into the world, right, to everyone we meet? So we can start with the book of Genesis. In the beginning, we read that God created man in his image. In the divine image, he created him male and female. He created them. God looked at everything he made and said that it was good. Everything is good. Male and female, he created them. Everything is good. And we know scientifically that the development of life on earth we know something about the human person, that we share certain qualities with animals. We, have a bodily, we, are, we are bodily creatures. We rely on material substances, food, shelter, clothing. We know this about our human nature. And yet to say that we are created in God's image and likeness 
means that we're more than just this material level of existence, right? The Catechism states that man, in his own nature, unites the spiritual and material worlds. We're called to something more. Human beings, if we just look at what makes us unique from the other animals of this world, human beings stand on two feet. Many of the church doctors uh, and, and the fathers of the church, including St. Basil, St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Bonaventure, uh, they've reflected on how this upright stature has moral implications, uh, but we back it up and we say it also has biological realities that are, are significant. We are unlike other creatures in that we have hands to work with. We have opposable thumbs. And we, we know scientifically now what we know from all that we understand of brain development. There's a relationship between the hand and the brain. There's, there's a relationship from how we use our hands and how we learn. And probably if you recognize this is part of you know Montessori education and what I do professionally, but also it's just fascinating to me um, that this is our human nature and it says something about who we are that we, we have intellects. Unlike the other animals of this earth, we have an ability to imagine, to hold in our minds images of things not physically in, in front of us, right? Right now, we can reflect on what the tabernacle looks like even though we're not still there, up in the church right now. And we can also create new images in our minds. We can think about things that we've never actually seen and this is what allows human beings to solve problems, right? Throughout all of human history, we've been able to invent things. First, it was like the basic hand tools that the early human beings used, but now think of the technology we have in our hands. Somebody had to think of it before it could exist. And that ability to think is a gift from God. God made us like that. God gave us these hands to work with, these minds, with these abilities, that are totally observable from a scientific standpoint, but have implications for us in our faith and how we choose to use them. And human beings have another unique gift. We have a capacity to love. We read that God created human beings in his image and likeness. Male and female, he created them. And we understand this to mean that like our Trinitarian God, we are called to love others to be loved, and to allow our love to bring forth new life into the world, to share our love in families and with people we have never met before. These qualities of the human being, our hand, our mind, our ability to love, allows us to solve problems, not just for ourselves, but for those that we don't even know to work to bring about good in the world, even on a natural level. We don't have to just talk about evangelizing in the strict sense of saying the good news of the gospel, uh, but to do good as a way of participating in God's creative love. Human beings are a unity of body and soul. We express our love with our bodies through our actions. When parents care for the physical needs of their children, by providing food, clothing, shelter. These are expressions of love. 
when for generations people have grown the food that they eat on a farm. Those who do that work provided for others, for their nourishment, for their good, as an expression of love. I think we think of, you know, go to the grocery store, buy some food, it's kind of an impersonal thing, right? There's an exchange of some money and we're out. But think about how for generations and generations, the work that was done was deeply united in a loving relationship to the people that it was done for. As human history progressed, as, as we move from that agrarian-based society into where we are today and, and these cities that become so busy, so seemingly impersonal, and as the work for many of us uh, has become a little less hands-on and a little more intellectual, we ask, how does that relate to us? And yet, there's a deep truth to be recognized, that we are still called to work as an expression of our self-gift for the good of others. Our work is still a relational experience, an opportunity to give of ourselves. St. John Paul II, in his encyclical on human work, states that man is made to be, in the visible universe, an image and likeness of God himself, and he is placed in it in order to subdue the earth. From the beginning, therefore, he is called to work. Work is one of the characteristics that distinguishes man from the rest of the creatures whose activity for sustaining their lives cannot be called work. Only man is capable of work, and only man works, at the same time by work occupying his existence on earth. Thus, work bears a particular mark of man, of humanity, a mark of the person operating within a community of persons. So he goes on to say that work can be physical or intellectual. It's any activity unique to the human person as we participate in the building up of civilization as a community of persons that are reflecting uh, God's love here in this world. So work is broader um, than that initial physical experience, and yet that initial physical manual labor teaches us something very important, that it's about self-gifts. It's about putting all of our effort and energy uh, at the disposal of, of a good beyond ourselves, about accomplishing God's will here and now in the world. In his encyclical, Charity and Truth, Caritas and Veritate, Pope Benedict XVI <coughs> helps us understand what we mean by this building up of the civilization. This authentic human development can only happen when we recognize the spiritual nature of the person. Right? We can meet the needs of others physically. We can help them grow in many ways. But when we, when we do so without recognizing that ultimately this person is a child of God, that ultimately they have a spiritual nature of longing for more, anything that falls short of that isn't authentically building up the true civilization that reflects God's love in the world. So any work that, that claims to be progress, that claims to be an advancement, that doesn't promote 
this spiritual development, this whole truth, is not, uh, is not enough. So that, that brings me back to what, then what, what is true work and how are all of these, these gifts and talents in this room being placed at the disposal of, of the mission of the church? So I just wanna speak from my own experience. Um, so just a little bit about what Montessori is. It's, it's a form of education uh, that is a little uh, different from what many people experience. We don't use textbooks, right? We have six to 12 year olds all in one room. Uh, they learn without textbooks. They're like, well, what do they do all day? Um, but they, they learn a lot through collaboration, through working together, through research using books that aren't textbooks. Um, and it's a Catholic school, so they, they grow in their faith while they're doing all of these things. Um, but my training was not in a Catholic university. My, my undergraduate was, my master's was, but my, my training as an educator was in a totally secular setting like you find yourselves in right now, right? Where you've got the support of people who share your faith, uh, but your professors and, and the others out there um, are just teaching you based on that discipline that you're studying. So I, I was trained in that setting, and I was trained to teach, listen carefully, math, language, geography, biology, history, music, art, geometry. What did I not take? Religion, right? I don't teach my own religion. I have, um, <laughs> I have a wonderful relationship with the catechist who does the religion portion of the curriculum that I don't do, right? Um, so you could ask, is what I'm doing part of the mission of the church? Like, I'm in a Catholic school, but I don't teach religion. Uh, is it a mission, right? Or is it just work? Or is there a distinction between the two? Uh, but I wanna suggest to you that this is why I think it's a mission and why I think that regardless of what setting you're gonna find yourself in professionally, um, what you're doing as a professional, even what you're doing now as a student, is a mission. Your work is a mission. Um, because I, I look at the students that I teach, and I see each one as a child who has a dignity that comes from God. And I look at the gifts of that child, and I try to further them in the area that has been entrusted to me, right? My job is to teach those subjects that I did list. And math will help that child in the world. Being able to write a complete sentence, as you know, as you write papers, will help that child <laughs> in the world, right? And these, these gifts of education, on a natural level, not get to the level of grace, this is part of building up the civilization of love, right, that God wants for this world. And so I, I suggest to you that as you also go into the world in all of your settings that you will find yourselves in, how you approach the good that that task can be for the world. The dignity that you see in the people that you study alongside, that you work alongside in the future, that is part of the mission. Because each day I also take all 39 of my children to Mass. And I sit with them, right? And we, we stand and we kneel and we, we work on helping them say their prayers. <coughs> And every day we bring all of that work that they do educationally to the Eucharist as a form of prayer. Every day we also bring the challenges that their families are facing. 
we, get, we have an opportunity for them. Uh, right now we've got a little three-year-old who, whose you know, family is, is suffering greatly from an illness. We bring those experiences to the Eucharist and we carry that alongside them. Even as I don't teach the religion to these children in an explicit way, as, as a catechist who is explaining the faith, that's someone else's role, but as I walk with them, as I journey with them, that is how what I do professionally is a mission. And I would suggest that whatever each of you do professionally, and even what you're doing now as a student, as you witness to your classmates, maybe not always through words, maybe simply by being honest, by being a person of integrity, by being generous and patient, even when others aren't. Those are opportunities for your studies now to be a mission, and opportunities for you to live whatever profession you enter as a missionary of the new evangelization, as someone who carries a witness of Christ into secular settings that might otherwise never know the gospel. So as you do that, you also bring it back with you to the Eucharist when you go to Mass, right? When we go to Mass and we offer the gifts to be transubstantiated, when we place all of our prayers on that pattern with the host, like whatever you're carrying, whatever you're doing is your work that becomes your offering. If you think about the farmers of the early civilizations and the ones who grew the wheat, that was made into the bread that became the Eucharist in the early church, right? They offered their work, right? They grew the wheat, they made the flour, they made the bread, Christ makes it his body. And we offer ourselves our work for him to transform in a way that goes beyond anything um, that we can think or imagine for ourselves. The mission that you carry into the world is is beyond your own abilities. So I just want to end with that as you think of, of what you do and how you bring it to Mass and ask Sister Paula Jean to carry it forward a little bit from there. Some further reflections. Having to do this, I yell loud. Um, 
Uh, most of you have an idea of like sisters teach, or sisters work in hospitals, or they do social work. But our sisters really um, do the work which is deep within the heart and soul and spirit of the young woman who comes to join us because then we figure that's what God is going to move us forward into doing because that's a need in the culture. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sent that woman to us if that was not a need, okay? So uh, we are extremely diverse, and that diversity then within our community life needs to be integrated with our Franciscan spirituality because the, the spirituality of St. Francis and St. Clair, our initial founder, founder and foundress, uh, is at the very core of our existence. And as Sister Mary Colby said, our, our works flow from our mission, our mission flows from our spirituality, okay? So that's basically, uh, but that was a good and challenging question, because a lot of people have said to us, how can you possibly do that as a religious community? It's difficult enough to all live together and get your act together when you're all just teachers in the same school, okay? <laughs> so it's, uh, it is challenging to integrate that diversity. So the mission of the Franciscan Sisters of the Eucharist, that's what we are. Our title is Franciscan Sisters of the Eucharist, really flows from our consecration to the church. And the, particularly that consecration to the church, which is the mystery of the Eucharist. Uh, and the Eucharist is defined, was defined, by Vatican Council II, long before I'm sure any of you were born, but it wasn't that long ago, like 67, as the source and the summit of the Christian life. The source, everything comes from the Eucharist. We don't have any potential to do anything except what we get from the Eucharist. And it's also our end goal. It's the beginning and the end. So everything, whether you know it or not, in your life begins and ends with the Eucharist. That's how important when Father Farrell does that mass for you. He is giving you the potential and the possibility for living a Christian life. And none of us sitting in this room are capable of living a Christian life, living as Jesus Christ lived, except through the Eucharist. We'll fall on our faces every time so that is our source, and it allows us to gear toward being the summit. The Eucharist makes the church. When you receive the Eucharist into your body, you become Christ. You become a member of the body of Christ. The Eucharist makes the church. It creates us to be church. And then the church turns around and it makes the Eucharist, okay? Uh, 
through the ministry of the priest, that bread and wine, through the word of Christ, is transformed into the body of Christ. So um, there's a book called that. The church makes the Eucharist makes the church, and the church makes the Eucharist. It's, uh, it's written by one of the, the, the um, um, Resource Small Fathers right at the time of Vatican II. It's very good. So, as members of that body, the body of the church, our community then consecrates itself to the mission of the church at, through the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, okay? Why do we make those three vows? Because what does scripture tell us about Jesus? He is the poor Christ, has no place to lay his head. He is the chaste Christ. He was never married, but he had a relationship of love to every person he encountered. And he is the obedient one. So as religious, we're called to be that visible, you know what is a sacrament? John, Pope John Paul II redefined sacrament. A sacrament makes visible what is invisible. A sacrament makes visible what's invisible, the spiritual and the divine. That's what a sacrament does. So we are called then to be a sacramental image and a sacramental presence of the church for our world. And that's just not our call. We're here to make it visible to you because that's your call as well. Because as Christ comes into you through the Eucharist and transforms you, you are to become that visible witness uh, to be Christ for the world. And as St. Francis would say, we do that either with or without words. Um, I lived in the Holy Land for a number of years, and it's, you'll, you'll think this is a little strange, but it is against the law to evangelize in the Holy Land. Okay? You can't do it. You can't do it. It's against the law uh, because it's a Jewish state. Okay? But we're very free to appear just like this. And so St. Francis would say, with or without words, we are a visible presence of poverty, chastity, and obedience, evangelizing in a country where evangelization is against the law. So we, we live our works, and we live that making visible of who Jesus Christ is by the way we live our life by living the, what we call the evangelical counsels, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And that's for all Christians. Okay, so out of our sacramental presence and visibility then flows our mission. Our primary work is to make 
Christ visible to the world. How do we do that? Through doing a particular work by which we enter into service to the people we're uh, working with. But no matter how varied our works, all of our works have the same end. What's the Eucharist? It's the source and it's the summit, it's the end. So what, what is that same end? To bring whoever we meet into a deeper relationship with Christ. To bring whoever we meet into some dimension of living and participating in the Eucharist and in the church. And also to bring, and this is very St. Francis and St. Clair, to bring every element of creation we touch into the cosmic body of Jesus Christ. Because all of creation was brought into being through the Logos, through the Word, okay, through Jesus. So it is all going to come to the eschatological end and the whole cosmos will become that body, that enfleshment, that visibility of Christ. So the Eucharist is the source and the summit of our charism and of our works. But, here comes the big but if, we live out our charism and our works, and you're all very aware of this, within a society that has, from day one, been distorted by sin. Mm -hmm. And the current manifestation of that distortion in our world is called secularization. Big word, you hear that? Okay, so we have the honest secular, then we've got secularization, and then we've got secularism, okay? And secularism is the ultimate bad word. I always say, wait, always avoid those ism words because that means that you've become concretized in something that's no longer true. Huh? So secularism is atheistic by nature, huh? no God. Secularization means we're heading in that direction. God, yeah, I believe in God, but, you know, he doesn't really have much to do with my daily life. And I put my hour in the pew on Sunday, and the rest of the week is for myself. Whatever I want to do, right? That is secularization, okay? It radically separates our culture from the sacred. What is the sacred? Sacred means, what is our relationship with God? Yeah, God made me, but then he forgot about me. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't really have a big part in my life. So, our constitutions as a community, our rule book, huh? If you look at that little handout I gave you, the first um, paragraph there, this is our mission. In a world that knows the rupture between the sacred and the secular, the Franciscan Sisters of the Eucharist endeavor in all their 
apostolic works. Every single one of them, okay? Whether you're in uh, biochemistry or whether you're in um, working in, on Humanae Vitae or whatever you're doing, every work leads the people we serve to a restored sense of the sacred. How do we awaken in people the fact that life isn't just about making money and doing what I want and having fun and having a binge? It's about a relationship with God and with other people. And if we had that, we wouldn't be where we are in Ukraine today. I'm really telling you. So, as a means to this end, each sister's apostolic efforts, whether that be in education, counseling, healthcare, care of the aging, manual work, whatever you're doing, being a vet, okay, are directed to increasing a sense of the full meaning of the sacramental life of the church. How do we bring one another into a deeper relationship with Christ to really become his body? So just a little bit of history so you know how we got here, because we got here through the secular. Our community began in embryo in 1969. Anybody in here born in 1969? Probably not. So we seem like an old community to you. We were given pontifical status in, on December 2nd, 1973, okay? That's really a baby community in terms of the um, 2,000 years of the Catholic Church. Okay, we've had religious communities way back with the Desert Fathers in the uh, 200s. Um, so we're, we're very young compared to that, all right? So we began right after Vatican Council II. Um, and Vatican Council II, because a lot of things had kind of gotten Sultified in religious life by that time. So the Vatican Council II asked religious to return to the spirit of their founders. And so we went back and learned a lot more about St. Francis and St. Clair. And the big thing about Francis and Clair was their founding spirit was essentially to follow the poor Christ. So they didn't want any property, they didn't want to own anything. They just, you know, Francis is one little ragged tunic that he walked around in his bare feet. In chastity and obedience. When we began in 1969 as a new community, that poorness of life which we made vows to was not only an ideal, but for us it was a necessity. Because we started out as a branch of another community and we had nothing we had a lot of uh, youth. Um, there were 53 of us that, that started in the community in that year. And um, in the house of 12 that I was in, there were two of us that had our bachelor's degree. Everybody else was still in school, okay? So guess what? The two of us who had our bachelor's degree, while the others were going to school to get their bachelor's degrees, the two of us, I went sat in an employment agency in a dark, dingy basement in Chicago. They filled out forms and said, you know, make me a temp, I'll do, go do anything. And so what 
that was God's plan and God's blessing for us, that it was a necessity for us to be poor because there were two of us that just worked to put food on the table for all the others so that they could get education. That's, that's part of being you know, a pioneer. So uh, <laughs> poverty became very real to us. It wasn't just like you know, having everything that we were used to having. So what, where did we go? We took jobs in the secular arena. My first job was at 3M. That's where I started as a sister, walking into 3M and working with all the people there at 3M. Um, and then I got a full-time job at a home for unwed mothers, um, working with young women. That was my introduction, I think, to the struggles and the difficulties of marriage and family life. Right. Um, so, but this was good for us because it placed us in the secular arena and gave us a first-hand experience of how our culture was changing. Because that was 1968, okay, what did we have? We had the sexual revolution and we got Roe v. Wade in 73, the same year we were um, <laughs> founded. Okay. Um, and we also got to know the secular, um, the, the challenges of the laity, the families we were working with, their challenges as they went out to do their work to maintain Christian values, how to, how to bring their kids up with Christian values when society was just going bananas. So that was, that was a good experience for us. And we, we began to build small lay communities, like communities of lawyers, community of doctors, communities of nurses, communities of married couples, to work with them on a Franciscan spirituality where they could begin to make an impact out in culture by being a Catholic doctor, by being a Catholic lawyer, okay? A lawyer who holds to Catholic principles. <laughs> a doctor who holds to Catholic principles, and uh, a bioethics person who holds to Catholic principles. That's difficult, that's challenging, that's tough in our culture. So um, we help them to um, study the church documents, to come to understand the theology of the body that John Paul II was, was just then beginning to uh, preach and teach. Uh, the mission of the laity, Christi Fidelis Laici. Um, Pope John Paul brought up the three munera of Jesus Christ to be prophet, priest, and king. Um, and we hadn't heard about that in many uh, centuries. But it was by participating in those three munera, and the, the kingship is the munera of the laity. And what does a king do? The king has to hold society together with principles of integrity. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the challenge of the laity. That's their mission, is they're the ones who are out there to sanctify the world to introduce Christ to the whole world. 99% of the church are not priests and religious. They're the laity. And it's the laity who have the mission to the world. 
So who, what do we do? The priests serve the laity. How? They give you the sacraments. They give you the word of God, the preaching, the counseling, the teaching, to get you ready to take on the world and transform the world. And we as religious, that prophetic dynamic of making visible to you how Jesus Christ lived. Why? So that you can live as Jesus Christ and thus sanctify the world. If you look at your handout again now, as religious sisters, and that's, we, as religious sisters, that means we're an active community, so we're out there in culture, and that differs from um, cloistered sisters, who are, their life is dedicated strictly to prayer, and that's what you call nuns, okay? So, nuns are cloistered sisters, sisters are active sisters, okay? Just a little bit of distinction for you to know. Okay, so, um, who likes to read? Anybody a good loud reader? Okay, if you read that, that second paragraph there, on the, because uh, our work is really to continue to support and build up the laity's mission. So what's that laity's mission? Can, can you... Here, you probably don't need this. Okay. <laughs> no? Okay. I, I can read it. All right, go ahead, because they all have it in front of them anyway. Yeah. Okay, go for it. To seek the kingdom of God by engaging in temporal affairs and by ordering them according to the plan of God, as they work for the sanctification of the world from within as a leaven. Leaven. Oh. Leaven, like, <laughs> leaven, like yeast. Okay, we're making bread here, all right? So you are the leaven that's going to make the bread rise, okay? Change that world. Okay, go ahead. Since they are tightly bound up in all types of temporal affairs, it is their special task to order and to throw light upon these affairs in such a way that they may come into being and then continually increase according to Christ to the praise of the Creator and Redeemer. Okay, so the laity are to engage in temporal affairs. That means any, anything that is happening in time, okay? to take it on and to change it, to transform it, to make it have principles of integrity and morality in how you be a lawyer, in how you be a doctor, in how you be a nurse, in how you be a plumber. We need a lot of change in our culture in all of that, okay? So that's the, that's the mission of the laity. Well, and many of our sisters still work side by side in the secular field with uh, the laity. But we've also, in our community, developed um, other work, other apostolic work. And those we really have developed in terms of the wounded areas of our culture. So. Um, like home and health care for the aged. You know, we got a lot of euthanasia going on in our culture. Marriage and family. We've got a lot of divorce. We've got a lot of um, infidelity. We've got a lot of, a lot. 
<laughs> Too much, I see it all the time. So. Personal and family counseling, education of children and young adults, migrants and minorities. And we have a group we call lay apprentices who are laity, I mentioned that before, forming small communities who, who try to integrate Franciscan spirituality into their work and into their lives. Uh, and they also work in some of our of those works for us, like um, say home care for the aged. Just as an example, Sister Mary Colby did this for herself, so I'll just I'm going to do this real quick. <laughs> My personal life mission has been centered by the work of teaching theology. Okay. Um, and most especially, my whole life has been geared to marriage and family, all right? So that's always, been, that's always been really important to me. How did that get to be important to me? Um, in 1973, I was sent to Connecticut, and this was really the time when divorce just went crazy in our culture. Um, and I remember I went to work for Father Lawrence Wren, who has, Father will know the name. He has written all the books on annulments and divorces. Okay, and he went around visiting college campuses when I was trying to figure out what I was doing for him. And he came back and he said, "I don't believe this. I don't believe this." He said, "85 percent of the students that I talked to, and he went to campuses all around the country." When I asked him about what they thought about marriage and about divorce, 85% said, eh, if it doesn't work, I can always get a divorce. That makes your marriage invalid to begin with. Okay? Um, so, we, we've, I mean, this, this is the time when we, we had a lot of problems with that. So I got into working in the tribunal with wounded marriages and families let me tell you, when you sit there and listen to everybody's heartbreaking stories, where that led me next when I went to Minnesota was at that point in time, there were no marriage preparation programs, which was part of the problem why we were having all the divorces, okay? So I started developing marriage preparation programs uh, in which I did this with the engaged couples with a married couple, so that we had both things going. So I got into marriage preparation programs out of my experience in the tribunal, and then only in 1988 did I begin my studies in marriage and family. I was in the first class of the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family in Washington. And when I graduated from there, I went to Mount St. Mary's and I began uh, preparing young men to be priests. Because if you're going to disseminate this and get it active in our culture, who do you need to prepare but the young priests who can counsel and teach and understand and build up marriage and family from within the church. So um, 
what I'm wanting to say here is that, you know, our, our way in our culture has normally been, okay, I decide what I'm gonna do and I go to school for six or eight or 10 years to get ready to do that, and that's how it grows. But for us, it more comes from our experience, and then we do our academic preparation. Because you get the life experience that helps you. Um, as my own spiritual life deepened, I began to find out what my niche was in uh, this. Tell me why I'm supposed to stop, because I will uh, stop anytime. So, <laughs> um, I began to think of myself as a translator. Um, translating what the documents of the church and the teachings of the church and the beliefs of the church, how do we make that connect? You know, how many of our people in our church have read the documents of the church? The popes write all these documents. How many people read them, criticize them, but they probably never read them? <laughs> so how do we translate? How do, um, now you, you probably, you've been laughing, so. I, I tend to be able to put things into words that the normal person gets, okay? So I, I see my work as a translator in theology. How do we bring things into people's basic human experience so that they really understand the church? And then my teaching began to take on a form of dialogue. I don't usually stand up here and give talks anymore. I, I tend more to try to get uh, students get their questions, and then what begins to happen is an interesting, it's been an interesting experience for me. Because when students ask me questions, and I start giving them an answer, what has happened so often in my life is even as I'm giving them an answer, I'm thinking, where is that coming from? I've never even had this thought before. Where is it coming from? This isn't something I read in a book. This isn't something I learned from another teacher. Where is it coming from? And I began to realize and to trust that the Holy Spirit will speak through me what the student needs to hear. And it's not my insight or what I learned, it's what God wants you to know. And then taking a deeper cut, I had a deeper experience. And as I was often speaking to the students what God wanted them to hear, I began to realize that the Holy Spirit wanted me to hear that. And that became my road to holiness. Because what the student had evoked in me in getting that response that God wanted for them, I too began to realize what I needed to change in my life and in the way I dealt with people. So it, it, the Holy Spirit really does become very active time are we stopping? <laughs> what, what, because the only other thing I wanted to do here is the Eucharist, and Sister Mae Colby already did that. Um, 
pretty much. So the spiritual spirituality of the community is centered in the Eucharist, and that means corporate transformation and redemption. St. Gregory of Nyssa, who Sister May Colby also mentioned, an early fourth century father of the church, um, and you can, you'll, you can read this yourself here, but uh, it's on your handout again. The important insight into how our life as Christians is only possible within the daily process of the Eucharist. And so he brings out the point that why did Christ take bread and wine in order to give us the Eucharist? Because bread and wine always from the beginning has the potentiality of being the body of Christ. When you eat bread, okay, there's what we call a process of assimilation. Where you eat bread, well, if, a doctor, if you got sick and the doctor looked in your stomach or in your, your whole body to see what's hurting you, he wouldn't see bread. What would he now see? Bread and wine have the innate potentiality of being transformed into flesh. Um, and so the only difference, Gregory of Nyssa says, is in the time. It takes time for that bread to become flesh in you, right? 12 hours, 24 hours, 36 hours, five days, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> Whereas in the Eucharist, that bread becomes the body of Jesus Christ. How fast? Just like that, with the word huh, of consecration. But the process is the same. So it's just a, what he calls a rearranging of the elements. So the same elements are in there, but now they have a new form. The elements of bread are still in me, but now they've been rearranged, so now they look like, not bread, but flesh. And so, like with, in the whole of creation, if I want something, I start with soil, and I put a seed in there, and the seed breaks open, and it takes in what? water and the nutrients from the soil, right? And now, what happens when I look at that, I don't see the soil in the, plant, in the seed, I now see the body of the seed growing, and then that body changes again and becomes a shoot, and that body changes again and it becomes a plant, and it becomes a flower, and it becomes a fruit, and then Raymond eats the fruit, and the fruit becomes his flesh, or a cow comes and eats the oats, and the oats become meat, and then Laura <laughs> eats the meat, and the meat becomes Laura, right? We live with this all the time. 
And then, St. Augustine said, but in the Eucharist, we got to make a big shift because it's going to happen differently. What we're doing in our process of living is everything, is every time we move, it goes up, up, up to a higher degree of biological life, right? But that's not what happens when we eat the bread which has become the Eucharist. When we receive the bread which has become the Eucharist, it doesn't become human flesh. It gets inside of you and it transforms your human flesh into what? into divine flesh. And so that transformation, that transfiguration, which is happening through the divine power of the Eucharist getting inside of you and transforming your flesh into the body of Christ, which now is no longer mortal, but immortal, which is what gives you the power to live forever. I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. And what do you say when you receive communion? Amen. Okay, good. We're done. Thank you so much for listening to this week's edition of our Thursday Night Streams podcast. We hope you enjoyed this talk from the Franciscan Sisters, and we can't wait to hear from you next week. Live, laugh, love.